Good morning, everyone. Uh, in our morning services this year, we've uh, been working our way through the lives of the apostles of Christ. We've looked firstly at the nature of apostleship, but then we've uh, taken a, our time to do an in-depth study on the lives of each of these men, going through them in the order that Mark lists in chapter 3 of his gospel. Now, by now, we should be aware that Jesus called 12 men during his earthly ministry. After his ascension, he confirmed Judas's replacement with the selection of Matthias. And then, of course, there was the Apostle Paul. Only these men lay claim to that noble title uh, because they were chosen personally by Christ. They physically saw with their own eyes the resurrected body of Christ. And then they confirm their God-given authority that Christ had bestowed upon them uh, by performing miraculous signs and wonders. As we've said, there are many people today who claim uh, to be apostles, but no one past the first century could ever meet these biblical qualifications. Now, while some of the apostles' names aren't mentioned a lot in Scripture, they were there in all the events that speak of the Twelve. Uh, They were all involved in being sent out to preach and perform miracles to validate that message. Uh, They were all witnesses to to what Jesus did and taught. They were all there squabbling over positions of authority amongst themselves. And they were all there as they, each one of them, skipped out on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then in the book of Acts, they may not be mentioned there personally by name, but They were included whenever the twelve or apostles are mentioned in Acts 2. The newly formed church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In Acts 5 verse 12 we read that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Later in that same chapter, all the apostles were arrested and they were all forced to stand before the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem, where after they were all beaten, uh, we are told in verses 41 to 42, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus, the exact thing that they were told by the Jewish council not to do. And while the details are sketchy as to exactly what happened after the pages of Scripture, church tradition is at least unanimous that every one of the apostles met a martyr's death, testifying to their last breath about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The only exception to that, as we know, was the apostle John, uh, who was exiled on the island of Patmos. Regardless of how much we know about the lives of these individual apostles, uh, we also know that together they formed the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 says that believers are the household of God, that is what? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And a foundation once laid is laid permanently and for good. Jesus also tells the apostles in Matthew 19, verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, 
You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, interestingly, in 1 Corinthians 6 and Revelation 20, we learn that all believers will partake in this ruling, but nevertheless, there is a prominence given to the apostles. And that prominence is seen finally in Revelation 21, verse 14, wherein describing a vision of the new Jerusalem, the Apostle John says this, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So here is the authority of the apostles of Christ, all the apostles of Christ. Now we need to remember this, especially when we consider the three apostles that we're going to look at this morning, men who we know far less about than any of the others. And yet as we'll see, even if even in the smallest details of the Bible, we can see that every word has incredible amount of power. Truly all scripture is breathed out by God, every single word. The three men we're going to look at today are James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, also known as Judas, son of James, and Simon the Zealot. And we begin with James, the son of Alphaeus. Well, there are four men called James in the New Testament. There was James, who was the Lord's half-brother. He was the first biological son of Mary and Joseph, so he was the next in line after Jesus. This James thought his brother Jesus had lost his mind in claiming to be the Messiah. But when the resurrected Lord Jesus stood before him, he became a believer. And moreover, he became one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church. And it was this James who was also the writer of the New Testament letter that bears his name. Then there was James, who was one of the sons of Zebedee, nicknamed by Jesus a son of thunder. He, along with his younger brother John and Simon Peter, made up the inner circle of the apostles. Then there was James, who was the father of one of the other apostles, who we'll address this morning, the one known as Thaddeus, or Judas, not Iscariot. And then we come to James, the son of Alphaeus. Who was this man? Well, one insight is found at the foot of the cross. Standing before Jesus were many women, four of whom are identified in the gospel accounts. And one of these women is listed in Matthew 27, verse 56, as Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Now, how is it that this woman's son was one of the apostles? Well, in John chapter 19, verse 25, we read that this Mary was the wife of Clopas. And it's been suggested that the names Clopas and Alpheus have arisen from different pronunciations of another common name. This may be the case, it may not be. Uh, It's also been suggested that James's father simply had two names, Clopas and Alpheus. So on these we can't be sure. But the way the Gospel writers have singled out Uh, The four women who stood at the cross of Christ, and you can go back in your own time and just read through Matthew and Mark and John and compare that. The way these gospel writers single out these four women makes it highly likely that Mary, the wife of Clopas, is to be harmonised with Mary, 
the mother of James and Joseph. But the argument for seeing this Mary as not just being the mother of any James, but the mother of James the Apostle, is strengthened when looking at Mark's recording of the crucifixion. Mark 15 verse 40 tells us that there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. James the Younger. Now it translates the Greek word mikros and can refer to being small in size or age or stature. Why does that strengthen the identity of this man being an apostle? Because being known as James the Younger or James the Less, as some translations have, is a perfect name when there is already another apostle called James who is characterised as a son of thunder. In comparison to James the son of thunder, he is without doubt James the Less. So that being the case, we know that at least one member of James's family, his own mother, was also a disciple of Jesus. It's also interesting to note that in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, the apostle Matthew, whose Hebrew name was Levi, is introduced to us as a son of Alphaeus. Now, could it be that Matthew and James were brothers? Well, maybe, but the evidence in the scriptures is quite thin for that. See, nowhere are these two men associated in the scriptures, and Matthew's name is visibly absent in the verses we've just looked at concerning James's mother at the cross. So this is all we have in the New Testament concerning this apostle. But that in itself tells us something about his character. He's not like some of the others who make brash statements and get themselves into trouble. If he was, I'm sure we'd have heard a lot more about him. He doesn't even seem to be like some of the others whose demeanour meant that, that people happily approached them. He's not like Thomas, whose black and white realism led to moments where he just, he just couldn't help himself in speaking up. No, he's just James the Younger. And the lack of details concerning this apostle suggests that here was a man who quietly followed Jesus. Now this is especially relevant given the placing of his name in the list of the apostles. In every list in the New Testament of the apostles, James the son of Alphaeus is always listed ninth. And as we've mentioned in previous weeks, there seems to be some sort of order within the apostles, three groups of four within the twelve. And Peter's name always heads up the first group, Philip's name always heads up the second group, and James, the son of Alphaeus' name, always heads up the last group. Now, given this position, we might be inclined to think that we'd hear more about him, but we don't. Here was a very unassuming man. Now, does that mean that he was far more understanding about Jesus' identity and, and the humble service the apostles were called to do? Well, not always. As we said, the scriptures tell us that all the apostles were engaged in arguments about who was the greatest. The scriptures also tell us that every apostle fled and left Jesus to be by himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. So James, by no means, was faultless. 
However, the lack of info about him leads us to think that he just carried himself generally with an attitude of humility and modesty. He just quietly got on with the job. Believers are not immune to the temptations and trappings of making a name for oneself. Think of the number of high-profile pastors whose pursuit of making a name for themselves has led to the downfall of their ministries. But closer to home, we, we all as Christ's people, even the least of us, need to watch that we are not pursuing glory for ourselves. That can happen just as easily in a church of ten as it can in a church of 10,000. Sin shows no impartiality. Here we see an exhibition of what the Apostle Paul calls all believers to follow in Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned and it's to live with the recognition that all the gifts we have are from god and all the blessings are from him and it's to serve in the ways that god has gifted us and to ensure that all the glory goes to him and think of the opening words to psalm 115 not to us O lord not to us but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The inclusion of James, the son of Alphaeus, into the mix of apostles shows that the heart of ministry does not rely on human personality or power, but on the grace of God in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. In that sense, what is true of the apostles is true in a general sense for Christ's body the church well next on mark's list of apostles is thaddeus here is another apostle who's referred to in different places by different names in mark chapter 3 verse 18 his name is thaddeus and that's the same in matthew 10 verse 3 but if you have a study bible uh, you'll see there's a footnote to this later verse, which tells us that some manuscripts also include the name Labaius. The New King James Version has retained that in its translation of Matthew 10, verse 3, which sees this apostle as Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Now, just hold that thought, because in Luke 6, 16, it's apparent that this same apostle is also called Judas, the son of James. So what on earth is going on here? Well, the simplest accounting for that seems to be that Judas was his first name, while Thaddeus was his surname, which was the surname of his father, who was called James. Now, the nickname, sorry, the name Labaius, if there's scope for its inclusion, seems to be a nickname. The reason for that is the name Labaius means heart, and Thaddeus means breast child in the sense of being a child of one's heart, being cherished by his mother. So Labaius then would be a nickname that plays off the meaning of his surname, heart and heart. Now, to avoid any confusion, we need to recognise that there are two other 
Judases in the New Testament. One of those is another half-brother of Jesus. Like the rest of his family, he was also not a believer in Jesus as the Son of God until after the resurrection. And the New Testament letter of Jude was written by this man. The other Judas is the last of the 12 apostles uh, that were initially chosen by Jesus, Judas Iscariot. And he'll be our sole attention as we finish this series on the Apostles of Christ next week. But Judas Thaddeus, nicknamed Labaius, stands apart as a man with a gentle soul, the child of one's heart. Now, there's only one place we hear anything from this apostle, and that is in John chapter 14. So please turn with me there in your Bibles. John chapter 14. This, of course, is uh, part of the discussion surrounding the Last Supper of Jesus and his apostles. And before looking at Judas's comments, we need to take a few moments to understand what's going on in this section. So we're going to pick up from verse 15. So John chapter 14 from verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Jesus links love with obedience. Now that's crystal clear, right? If you love Christ, then you're going to strive to live in obedience to what he says. And not merely the words that he spoke on earth, and not merely those red letters that you might find in certain translations of the Bible, but all the words of the Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. You know, it's amazing how often people decry that to preach obedience is to preach legalism. There was a whole movement in the 1980s that reacted just like that. It affirmed the notion of carnal Christianity. It was said that you could have Christians who were justified before God, even though they lived like they still belonged to this world. But carnal Christianity is an oxymoron. Hebrews 12:14 declares strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, let's just be clear. All right? We are Protestants, not Catholics. The Bible teaches that sanctification is growing in holiness and obedience to Christ is not part of the means of justification. A sinner is justified by faith alone and by grace alone in Christ alone, not by grace plus works. Now, that little word alone is key. That's why there was a reformation in the 16th century. And that's why that reformation has not ended today, because The Roman Catholic Church still teaches justification by grace plus works. Now, friends, that is not good news. Where's the assurance in that, that we could ever perform enough good works to stand righteous before God? The true gospel, however, is that God's sovereign grace alone 
frees a person's will from its bondage to sin, enabling them to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And in this, our sins are forgiven and we are declared righteous before holy God. All this by Christ's work, his righteousness imputed to us, credited to us. Now, nevertheless, justification is not separated from sanctification. A sinner justified by the grace of God will be one whose new love for Christ begins to produce good fruit, which is empowered by the grace of God. Sanctification is not part of the means of justification, but it is the evidence of justification. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There is nothing unclear about that statement from Jesus. But he continues, verses 16 to 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, at this point, this historical point where the apostles are sitting before Jesus, the apostles had the Holy Spirit with them because the Holy Spirit was upon Jesus. But in Jesus' atoning work on the cross, the sins of his people would be dealt with so that through faith they could be justified and immediately receive the Holy Spirit to be in them as the Holy Spirit himself had been in Jesus. While believers under the old covenant were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's indwelling is is part of what makes the new covenant new. All believers under the new covenant have the Spirit in his fullness. But the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence can only be received by those in Christ. The world cannot receive him. Now, if the Holy Spirit is to dwell in believers, then Jesus needed to die and rise again, and proving this by appearing to his people. So he continues in verses 18 to 21. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So, with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the last days have commenced, and believers experience the first fruits of the blessings of God's kingdom reign. Now, at the resurrection, at Jesus' resurrection, the apostles' eyes would be opened to understand the wonder of the relationship that Jesus had brought them into. All believers are drawn into the eternal communion of the triune God. And that eternal communion of the Trinity comes to dwell within us as temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, the apostles were okay when Jesus said that the world could not receive the Holy Spirit. That's not a problem for them to grasp. 
But this last statement of Jesus sparks a comment from the one called Judas Thaddeus. Verse verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus had just said that he will manifest himself to those who love him by God's gracious enablement. However, the prevailing sentiment of the first century was that when the Messiah came, he would bring in God's kingdom reign immediately. Now that was John the Baptist's problem, wasn't it? When he asked if if Jesus really was the Messiah, he was wondering if this is if the Messiah has come, why on earth is there a delay in the kingdom of God being fully revealed straight away? Judas Thaddeus has the same question. But here we see the gentleness of this man, this heart child. His relationship with Jesus was so comfortable that he felt he could interject. Yet he doesn't do so with brashness like some of the other apostles. No, he just does so mildly and calmly. He genuinely wants Jesus to help him understand. And he's saying, Jesus, we believe you are the Messiah, but why are you only going to reveal yourself fully to us and not in splendour to the whole world? Now this right here is a beautiful example for us in the way to carry on a theological conversation within the body of Christ. Judas wasn't approaching Jesus with an agenda. He wasn't forceful. He wasn't demanding. He had a relationship with Christ and he asked with gentleness and respect. And he allowed Jesus' opportunity to respond and Jesus gladly did so. And the tenderness of the question is matched by the tenderness of the response. Verses 23 to 24. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. Now, one day Jesus will manifest himself to the world in judgment. But in the meantime, he did not come to establish a political kingdom, a a kingdom of forced submission to his lordship. No, the kingdom will be extended by God, revealed by God one soul at a time and Jesus will manifest himself to anyone who loves him earlier in the upper room Jesus had told the apostles that he was going away to prepare rooms for his people in his father's house now we are told that even though we must await the fullness of that blessing we are not left alone And this is because the loving presence of the triune God will be in all who love Jesus and keep his word. For the Father, Son and Spirit will take up permanent residence in the bodies of every believer. The gentle soul of Judas enabled such a tender and beautiful and glorious truth to be spoken by our Lord. And that reality is the reality that every single believer experiences today. So here is Judas Thaddeus, nicknamed Labaius. 
Well, the diversity of the 12 chosen by Christ is expressed even more clearly as we move from this tender-hearted man to another whose reputation was known for anything but tenderness. The last man we'll look at today is the Apostle Simon, known as the Zealot. There are several Simons in the New Testament. It was Simon Peter, who was the first apostle. Simon the leper, who was a man healed by Christ. Simon the Pharisee, a man Jesus once shared a meal with. Simon of Cyrene, who was the man forced by the Romans to help Jesus carry his cross. There was one more because Jesus also had a half-brother called Simon. But who was Simon the Zealot? Well, aside from the mention of his name, the scriptures tell us absolutely nothing about this man. Yet, like with James the Younger, we can still learn a great deal from the designation that was given to him. He wasn't just Simon, he was Simon the Zealot. And this title is not explicitly sharing information about his personal character, it's showing his former association Because the Zealots were one of the major Jewish parties within the first century. So in understanding more about the Zealots, we'll come to understand more about Simon's personal character. Now just a side note, the the New King James Version has Simon's name in certain lists as Simon the Canaanite. But it's not a reference to a place, it's simply a Hebrew word that means zealous. So if you come across that, you'll know what it means. So who were the Zealots? It seems the group did not truly formalise until around 60 AD. Uh, However, there were certainly precursors to this right from the beginning of the first century. Uh, For Jews living in the promised land, but under Roman occupation, it was a terrible contradiction. And there were four main groups that, that kind of formed by way of response to this situation. There was the Pharisees, who held tighter to the law of God. Uh, The Sadducees benefited by aligning with Rome. The Essenes, who are not mentioned in the Bible, they they separated themselves from everything and they headed out into the deserts. And then there were the Zealots, who sought to bring change by force. They took it upon themselves to rebel against Rome and tear down its power in whatever the ways they could and by any means necessary. Now there are glimpses of this in the New Testament. Just turn with me to Acts chapter 5. In the second half of Acts chapter 5, we are told that the Jewish council had arrested the apostles And they were trying to decide what to do with them. And a Pharisee named Gamaliel speaks up and he tells the council to let the apostles go because if their mission is truly the work of God, it will succeed anyway. Uh, But if it's not, it will fall apart on its own. And he gives two historical examples of ungodly failures. And so in Acts 5 and in verses 35 to 36... We read this. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, 
Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Then Gamaliel gives another example in verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And there's no other record of Thutis's revolution um, than what's written here. But we know from other sources that the actions of Judas the Galilean occurred in 6 AD. Now, another revolution is mentioned later in the book of Acts. So turn over to chapter 21. Again, in the second half of the chapter... Paul was in Jerusalem and uh, he, the apostle was saved by Roman soldiers after he was almost beaten to death by the Jews in the temple. And the Roman official in charge asked Paul in chapter 21 verse 38, Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So, The official thought Paul was a false prophet called the Egyptian. A few years earlier, this man had promised to overthrow Rome, but he was thwarted when the Romans had killed or captured hundreds of his own followers. The Egyptian managed to escape, um, and so the Roman official naturally thought that he'd finally found his man in the person of Paul. Interesting is the word translated in this verse as assassins. In the Greek, it's the word sikarion, and a sika is a curved dagger. So sikarion literally means dagger men. Now they got this name because these fanatics would hide these kinds of curved daggers within their robes so they could walk right up to a Roman soldier or politician or Roman sympathiser and knife them before the victim ever knew what was happening. They believed in the righteousness of their actions, thinking that God would reward them. Now, it seems there was a difference between the Sicarii and the Zealots, with the Sicarii being even more fanatical. However, both groups contributed to inciting Rome's absolute displeasure and in bringing its full force to obliterate Jerusalem in 70 AD. Josephus the first century Jewish historian had this to say about the zealots. And I quote, In this lawlessness, the so-called zealots excelled, a class which justified their name by their actions. For they copied every evil deed, nor was there any villainy recorded in history that they failed to emulate zealously. And yet they took their name from their professed zeal for virtue, either in mockery of those they wronged, so brutal was their nature or reckoning the greatest of evils good, end quote. So here we understand more about the Apostle Simon. This was his life. This was the life he was a part of. This was his philosophy. This was his mentality. He was a zealot. And that meant bringing in God's kingdom by any and every means necessary. But that, of course, was before he met Jesus. And Simon's inclusion into the Twelve showed the transformation of this man. Jesus showed Simon 
as well as the 12, as well as us, as we look at the pages of Scripture today, that the kingdom of God is not about earthly power. It's not about earthly ethics, where the ends justify the means. We don't bring about change through force or coercion or for political manoeuvring. The kingdom of God does not leave room for, well, to take the example of Sakari, it doesn't leave room for knifing others in the back to get our own way. Just think of Jesus standing before Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. John 18, 36. The church, as the visible outpost of the kingdom, is not a political body. We are the spiritual body of Christ, and we operate under the guidance of the Spirit, the Spirit who drives us to His inspired Word, and it's through the Word and prayer that things happen within the body of Christ. We are to keep in step with the Spirit. We are to see His fruit within our lives. Galatians 5. 22 to 24 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. One amazing thing about the kingdom of God is the reconciliation that can take place within it. I mean, just remember that Matthew was also an apostle. Before meeting Christ, Matthew was a tax collector for the Roman authorities and was lining his pockets with the money of his own people. A few years earlier, Matthew would have been the exact person who would have met his end at the tip of Simon's blade. Simon wouldn't have missed a wink of sleep thinking about it. And yet here... In the presence of Jesus, these two men can stand together as brothers. That is the power of the gospel. Now, while Simon's life was changed when he met Christ, it's interesting that his name wasn't. He was a zealot before, and he remained a zealot after, but this time his zeal was for Christ. In a sermon on this matter, the great Charles Spurgeon declared these words. And I quote, As for some of you, whose religion gets into a very narrow compass and is good for very little when it gets there, I pray you bestir yourselves. If your religion is a lie, do not profess it. If it is a fast, do not enslave yourself to it. But if there is anything in religion, it is worth everything. It cannot sit second at the table. It must have the first place. The Christian man is to be, first of all, a Christian man. Next to that, a tradesman or what you will, but first of all, a Christian man. The first thing with the believer is his Lord. Christ will be nowhere if he is not first and chief and that religion is vain and void which does not fill the soul and take up the throne of the heart. May God allow us then to wear the character, if not the name, of Simon the Zealot. And then we'll wait at his footstool and serve him after such sort as he shall help us to do. 
and his shall be all the praise. End quote. We've only one word describing the Apostle Simon. That word is zealot. But it teaches us of the waywardness of his life before Christ and the focus of his life with Christ. We too can speak of ourselves before coming to Christ as being zealous, zealous for one thing, zealous for sin. But may we follow the example of Simon, that being made in Christ, our zeal for the Lord is evident to all. So we've seen these three apostles today, James the Younger, Judas Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. By God's grace, they too formed the foundation of the church with the other apostles. And you know what? It doesn't matter that not much was written about them because their lives were not devoted to the glory of themselves but to the glory of God. And may that ever be the focus of our lives as well. Let's pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. In Christ's name, Amen.